What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my honored guest is truly royalty, Mr. Jules Holland, host of Later with Jules Holland. Thank you very much, my friend, for being here. It's gr- First of all, just on a personal level, it's great to see you again. Seems like a lifetime since we hung out in January, but uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's wonderful to see you again, and exactly where it seems like a lifetime, and it's great. For, I'm so pleased to be on this show. So pleased to have something to do. <laughs> I think when you text me, said, "Are are you around?" and I said, "I'll just check my diary." Yeah, I, I'm watching the television on Tuesday. Other than that, I've got no, I've got nothing on. But um, yeah. but yeah, when when you when we got together and we wrote and we played and recorded in was it January? Yeah, January. January. Yeah. What world was a different place? It was a different place. I mean, I know we personally, our our entire world changed on March 12th. That was the last, that was the last show in mini. It was in Minneapolis. It was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and the next day, it just felt like there was a sea change. Like the whole, like the whole, like like eight o'clock the night before it was great. The next day, it's like. It's it's over. Go home. Stay in your house. So like, what what was the scene for you? Were you were you guys were you guys about to tape the show or like? Yeah, we were. We, were, we, we had a show, a show. We had a show in Linz in Austria, and the next day we were in Vienna, and then we were have one in a little place called Bad Ischl. And in Linz, they cancelled the show, which was a shame because it was a, a a good show, you know. And, uh, anyway, they, well, they're all good shows, but they cancelled the show. And then in Vienna, they said, well, we think we're going to try and go ahead because they, the, the authorities say we're not really supposed to do it. But we think because we, the Viennese are very, you know, they sort of and then they realized they couldn't do it. And then in Bad Ischl, they said we can do the show, but we can only let like 100 people in this sort of theater. Right. I think it was all right. I think they'd only sold 25 tickets. So, didn't right. really <laughs> but, uh, so that was the last thing we did. And we flew out of there, came back. We had lots of then we had a summer full of shows all gone. Whole, the big band all sort of waiting to go. And now we've we've st- we we were hoping we'd be out at the end of the year because we t- I tour with a big band all over Britain at the end of the every year and we play in the Albert Hall and everything and all that's gone now. But when it first when it first happened, I thought oh no, and I thought well there you are. I'll just drive back from Vienna from from Austria. You know, it'd be quite a fun drive across Europe and pretend I'm James Bond. But then I thought I better fly back because I just I might get stuck and there's nothing is open anyway. You can't even get anything to eat. So unless you go and yeah. live with some, in somebody's house and wear a mask. So anyway. We're still here. There we are. I know. I know. A couple of my friends had tours in the. They were in the middle of tours, and and generally uh, that part of the year we would have been in Europe. It, we just reversed it this year because we made the record at Abbey Road, but they were. They literally were told by their German and English tour managers, respectively, that you know wherever territory they were touring in, that if you don't go home now. You may not be able to get back because the yeah. things are rapidly shutting down, and it it was just it was it's a mental mental. Yeah. It's like how our entire industry that we've taken for granted for so long is just we're just we're we're available. It's like, yeah, like you exactly. said, we're free. Well, but one of one of my musicians said to me, he said, "Well, the thing is, you know," he said, "I mean, you know, when the." When the sort of internet came along, it sort of got rid of records. So that was one thing less that we sort of had that we could sort of make any money out of. He said, no, now we haven't got any gigs. What are we going to do? Right, right. <laughs> but I, I wonder, to... if you think back, I wonder if um, in the sort of in the in the great plague of the of the set of the 16th century, mm-hmm. uh, um, of the Black Death that swept across Europe in the 14th century, and I've been looking at my plagues, 
it must have been the same thing. Everything just kind of closing down. And the musicians who would have been touring around, and oh, I often think of nobody knows who they are because nobody could record them, but they would have been, you know, right. like you going around making lovely sounds to everyone. But no, because they couldn't record, you know, nobody knew who they were. They couldn't write down what they did. Um, but same thing, everything must have gone. There's got to be a cello player that wrote a book called the. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. There's got to. There's. there's gotta, <laughs> so so tell me, you know, like one one of the one of the most commonly asked questions that I that I that I ask on this show, because it doesn't matter if you're Jules Holland, the legend, the icon, or if you're Scott Ian from Anthrax, or if you're a journalist, everybody gets into music when they're a kid, and there's always a host or a conduit. And there's always that moment when the passion for music supersedes just being a casual listener and a, and a casual fan. What was that? What was that moment for you when you were like a, a kid? And went, hmm, the piano, and I love music. Like, what was? Who was the host? That's that's a very good question, and I think it is true. I think for anybody that does anything, you know, who does anything up to the age of. You know, up to the age of, they say, give me a child to the age of eight and I'll make that person the child because that's your most, that's when yeah. the information is most going in, that you're most kind of in your in your childlike way. But it's, the, it's where you became most obsessed with things, I think. So for me, um, I'd, uh, you know, my parents, they, were, they, they liked jazz records and blues records. So there was a whole thing where in the late 50s in England, the underground music was listening to blues or early New Orleans music. They used right. to listen to, like, sort of um, Sidney Bechet and things like that, yeah. you know, and Bessie Smith and that sort of thing. Uh, that was, although that wasn't their peer era, it was like there was a whole group right. of people who, it was underground. So so I was exposed to that and I liked that music. So I wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, alien to me. And I'd heard, like, people, you know, I'm born in 1958, so I'd be here on the radio the Beatles and think that was fantastic. And I would hear like um, Chamberlain Motown and think that was fantastic. Right. But age, but I couldn't really, I didn't really identify that uh, they came from different places, you know, the, or that, you know, there was the Detroit and Liverpool. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I was just thought this music sounds great. That's all I right. kind of knew. But then the thing really for me was this, I had an uncle called Uncle Dave. In fact, I should have bought a photograph in. I've got a photograph of me and him when, when, when I'm small. And he was my mother's younger brother. And he probably wasn't much, uh, he was probably he's, um, maybe 10 years older than me, something like that, or maybe a little bit more. Um, in the, I suppose, 60s, in the mid-60s, there was like a blues boom in London. And there were all these groups like the Rolling Stones and... Right and everybody, but they were all making this blues music. And so my uncle had a group doing that music. I've got the photographs of them. They, right. you know, they're like mobs doing this thing. And they were doing their take on the on the blues, which they'd heard. And they would rehearse in my grandmother's front room, which was tiny. I mean, it was in a little terrace house, mm -hmm. you know, terrace street in Greenwich with the little bay windows and everything. And I heard them doing this. I thought, that's, well, I like that. But I was never allowed in. It was because I was sort of the annoying kid, you know, but I like, kind of liked the idea of that. And his, his group, by the way, was called The Planet, and they had a wooden signboard that said London's, London's Best Rhythm and Blues Group. And I always thought, what a great thing. I mean, right. I don't think they worked because... You know, he, he he was a truck driver. That's what he did. And they, in the end, you know, they, they they were like the Rolling Stones, except they didn't have the great success. But they played that music, you know, like like yeah. kids did. 
So, and it was, they were all a bit older than me. I'm aged about six or seven. And then one afternoon, I go round to my grandmother's house and in the front room, he's playing on the piano. She had an old pianola, which is like an old um, piano that plays itself with a roll. And it's quite bashed up because in the war, in the Blitz, a bomb had smashed the window in and like all kind of burnt the, the, the piano, but it had sort of managed to somehow survive, you know. Right. Um, and he's playing this piano and he's playing this very simple boogie woogie thing. And I thought that's the most fantastic thing I've ever heard. It was it was like he was playing St. Louis blues in a boogie woogie style. My mother always said, she said, well, I showed him that. She said, why did you always give him the credit? It was me that showed it. Anyway, right. he played, and I said, hey, what's that you're doing there? And he said, oh, he said, that's boogie woogie. That is, isn't it? Right. I said, what's that? He said, it's good, isn't it? I said, well, how would you do that then? So he, he showed me. I, could, I found I could copy his what he did. And it was the best. It made me so excited. And so I suppose it's when... Uh, and I, to this day, when music has that effect on you, um, uh, that it just like lifts you up. And I suppose, and you would want to hear it again straight away. What is that? I've got to hear that. It's so fantastic. It lifts you right up. So I learned. So I, I figured out. He showed me what he, he knew, but he only knew this one piece. Right. And, and that, but that was the point when I really thought, for me, that's kind of um, uh, it. I just got to play. So I became obsessed with playing. Uh, piano in the front room drove my grandmother and all my neighbors mad with just yes. playing the same thing trying to figure it out and and that was a thing that really got me going i should say so my dad my father said well you i can see you've got a bit of a you know you've got a you've got sort of a gift for this so well let's yeah. say, you know he wanted to encourage it so he said well what we'll do he said we'll do two things he said we'll send you to a piano lesson so I went to a formal piano lesson, but I lasted sort of about two weeks because they were showing me scales and, and sort of pieces of written music where you had to very slowly learn a thing called the dance of the pixies. I thought, I don't, I don't like playing this. I want to play boogie woogie. So let's go. Right. And then the other, the other thing he said was you should get you should hear some of the old boogie woogie records. So I said, well, what are they then? Um, so, I, so he sent me up to Dobell's jazz record shop and blues record shop where um, which was a famous sort of jazz and blues shop in the middle of in Soho in London. And uh, the very nice man in the shop, I went in aged about, must have been about nine. And um, I mean, nowadays, a lone child wouldn't probably be allowed to roam through the streets of Soho right. in his short trousers and his big tie and mop of hair, bouncing along right. past the doorways of beckoning sin and everything. But um, anyway, I go in. Uh, go into the uh, record booth and he gives me a pile of records like this and I spend all afternoon and then there's a knock on the sort of the, the booth door and he says we're closing now have you chosen one but he didn't throw me out before that and I said yes I think I'd like this one by Pete Johnson please and he said you've made a very good choice there. anyway so then I got back and I just had this one record by Pete Johnson Albert Ammons and Jimmy Yancey which it turns out really were the best like the kind of right. the really important key figures in inventing that style of music and also were kind of all very different in the way they played. So it was great to have that record. And I just listened to that and then pounded the piano to death. You know, I, I you know, I have two questions, you know, how long did it take? Because like you were saying, you know, the piano that you learned on had been damaged in the war. How long did it take, you know, England or, you know, the UK as, as, as a whole to when you when do you remember you didn't see the scars from the war? When was the, you know, like the, was it the mid sixties, late sixties, 20 years after, after? I think even up to maybe 30 years ago, you know, wow. 35 years ago, there was the odd bit, the odd, not a lot, but the odd little bit left. 
but maybe 35, 40 years ago, they were, you know, and of course now, because property is worth, well, it was worth a lot of money, and, and every square inch got built up on. But the um, the piano that I learned on, actually, that, that, that my grandmother always used to tell the story, my mother remembers it, that when at the Blitz, um, and by the way, I should say, I'm sure exactly the same thing was happening in, in there's right. probably some story, exactly the same happening in Germany, in the German city somewhere, it's going on anyway, but she used to say, here's the Blitz, and they used to have to go to the air raid shelter, and they shut the piano lid, and when the bomb went off, it's, it burnt out, or burnt, it didn't destroy the house, but it burnt the all of the, it knocked the window in and sort of caught the, the right. curtains went on fire and everything. And afterwards, the piano was sort of charred. I've got the piano out the back here, oh. but um, uh, but the, but the and my grandmother was always say when I was little, she'd lift up the lid and say, look, the lid inside is all perfectly preserved, which it was. And you'd say, oh, that's interesting. And then, of course, she would press the pedals and the pianola start bit would start to play. And, and you could get roles of people like Fats Waller on and Jelly Roll Morton. So you could hear all that as well, which was another nice sort of thing that you picked up with. Why do you think the English embraced the blues so much? Because I always say, and, I, and it's a bit controversial to say, but I think the English have done more for the popularity of the blues than, than, any, other, than any other country, because if it wasn't for this, this, this groundswell of support and, and popularity, I'm like, you had jazz and blue shops and and you know it wouldn't have been re-imported to the united states via led zeppelin via the jeff beck group via cream and you know suburban kids like myself probably wouldn't have gotten introduced to the great masters like muddy waters and holland wolf and robert johnson if it wasn't for that host you know like what do you th what do you think about the music that resonated to so many so many people like yourself I think it was is 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 in it is a question. I think is is interesting because you know to me I, I think it's great and I completely understand you know when we've met and talked about it how the and 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 other styles of British music as well how that is a romantic distant place right. from coming to London where I live and be and and Abbey Road Studios to me is like going to one of the great two, is like going to Memphis or going to yeah. to New Orleans or something you know it's like these are the places that you've always dreamed of going because the music you've heard has come from these places 100 and, uh, and but i think the thing was it's interesting why the i think why did britain embrace the, the blues i think they, they like the, a number of things about it i think that um you know the the, the certainly in the 50s it was a kind of the underground music was the folk music of the day my late father-in-law it was called Rory McEwen, and he he was one of the first people to play lead belly music, and he right. was very obsessed with that. And they liked, and the folk people, uh, you know, you had pop music on the radio, and you, but the but folk and the blues was like the un, almost like the underground music, mm -hmm. and I think they liked the direct poetry of it of it because it is it yeah. really yeah. the the words are something, and then the way it's played has got this feel. It isn't like anything else. You think it's simple, but you can't ever quite get it. But I think the, the fact that it sounds like it might be easy to play, but in fact, you could spend your lifetime never figuring it out. But it sounds like it's but meant that young people, like I like, not only really like the music, but they thought, well, actually, I can, I can do a take on this. And this. And also, I think the other reason why some young people liked it, it was because it was the music, it was like adults' music. It wasn't like um, soppy. Um, it had humour in it, 
and it's talked about sort of you know love and life and death and sex and all the it's all the things that other people weren't really singing about so i think the that side of it was great and the way they were playing was like well, we've never heard anything like this before and it really makes us excited you know this is, is you can sort of people up and there was like i say that you know, I've talked to uh, Eric Clapton about this, and he says, you know, which I grew up as well, there was this traditional jazz, what they call traditional, like early New Orleans jazz, right. people that did that, people like Chris Barber over here. And um, and, and Dr. John used to say he, they, he, they do a fantastic job, some of them really great, of bringing that music to life. But a lot of the blues people came up playing alongside them because that was a little circuit that existed. Yeah. And so if you were starting out when you were really young, before, you know, like, like Eric was, it would be playing, um, or Robert Plant says, I think he, he played, I think he did a gig, he went to see or did a gig with Chris Barber, they, but it was those trad jazz people that had a circuit that, and from that early New Orleans music, the blues was there. So it was like part, they felt associated with that, you know. And then I think people here, it was like a mainstream thing. There's a film somewhere, I think Ringo Starr, when he first lands in America, uh, no, he lands in Texas. That's right. They, the Beatles go to Texas, and he gets off the plane. And he says, "Well, Ringo, it's great to be here. What are you, what are you looking forward to?" He said, "Well, um, he said, I think uh, Lightning Hopkins lives here. I'm looking forward to meeting him. Is he here?" Right. <laughs> and then Lightning Hopkins. Well, he's kind of great, you know. I mean, so there was a long-standing uh, thing that I think wasn't. So I think the, uh, that was, uh, you know, there were people immediately just after the war, and some of the blues people toured when they toured, like um, um, uh, Big Bill Brunsey and Sister Rosetta Tharp, right. these people would come over and, like, they were kind of very popular, you know, in the, in the 50s. And they would use English bands. Like, yeah. cats like Alton John were backing up, like, I, I, I think it was, or David Bowie was backing up a little Richard, you know, like, as they would come. Like, you know, it's like, to me, it sounds like, like primitive, like, not primitive, but, like, early stages of rebellious punk music. You know, it yeah. was dangerous, it was... It was exciting. One of the things I found interesting was that when, when I watched the movie on Keith Richards and 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 I even heard Eric Clapton talk about this, like when they came over to America for the first time, they were like, "You said, where's Lightning Hopkins?" Thinking you'd find Lightning Hopkins in like Bever uh, Beverly Hills Mansion, like they were these pinnacles of showbiz. You know, they were super successful, and they and shockingly, they were like. Why is Muddy Waters not a huge star? Why is Big Bill Brunsey, you know, still playing, you know, you know, small clubs and 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 stuff like that? I mean, was it was it a shock for you to see the the popularity of your heroes not be as popular as you thought they were in in the UK? I think there is a part of that because people were like kind of thought of as yeah musical giants and they were icons. Like even going back to like people like. Um, but if it's like you know the you know people love Louis Armstrong in 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 uh, in the UK you know he was like right. a sort of huge star like really huge star and then from there and and then the blues people that would come and he used to do of course blues stuff in his set but then the 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 but then the blues people were huge stars and then when I first I think when I first I think in 1984 or five I went and did a um, uh, program called Walking to New Orleans. 
and we did this film about New Orleans music. And I was only like 26 or something, you know. Uh, but I had the main credential that I had is that I really loved the music, you know. And I've yeah. grown up, listening, I loved all that. So there was Sir Alan Toussaint, and uh, I think Professor Longhair had just died. But we had all of the other people, Lee Dorsey. And Lee Dorsey, who again in Britain was a huge star, all of his records have been huge hits. He was on the radio all the time. But when you went there, uh, he was a fantastic, lovely man. What a lovely man he was. In the film, in fact, he's he had two things. He go he went on, used to go on tour for like through a little bit of the year, and then he had a car breakers yard, like a scrap metal yard. Right. And in the film, in fact, he cuts the roof off of our car for us because that's. And I thought, he, but he's Lee Dorsey, and he right. said, and and I went to his local bar with him, and we. And it was really great actually. I mean, what a lovely man. But I just thought this is like it's like I thought well. It would be like I don't know what it'd be like. You'd be like coming, coming from America, coming to see the Beatles, and they sort of and they oh yeah on a Tuesday they sort of have to run their sort of um, scrap metal yard, you know. <laughs> Tell me about like um, I read something about you that I didn't know, and like when you first turned professional, you were doing some sessions and stuff like that. And one of the sessions that came up in my research was something that I would I could have guessed a thousand times and would have never guessed. And it was a, 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 a punk band from New York named Wayne County and the Electric Chairs. And you're credited on, on a song called Blank Off. Um, yes. And it's and I was like, it can't, it can't be Jules. And I kept and I and and so I'm here asking, I'm like, how did you get that gig? Well, that's a very good, and also it's, a, it's kind of a blue, it's like a sort of a punk meets the blues. That's what I mean. The blues was all right with, there was something, can I just, I should just say as well, that was the other thing in punk. So by the time I'm growing up, although like, when I'm sort of 14 and 15, myself and, and Glenn Tilbrook, the guitar player in Squeeze, who's right. a great guitar player, by the way, but he, he, we used to do little shows at gigs in pubs and some of it was blues things. He used to, he used to love Jimi Hendrix, so he'd play yeah. like kind of, we'd do a Red House and then I would, we'd do the Boogie Woogie stuff. And then as we kind of got a little bit older and just things were starting to move, um, uh, so the punk thing came along right. and we were sort of embraced by it. And Boogie Woogie somehow was, Boogie Woogie and the blues were like kind of, uh, the, the punks accepted that. It seemed right. to be part of it because it was an outsider kind of music. It was a rebel sort of music. It was a music that you didn't have to be like a virtuoso to play it. In fact, it helped if you weren't. And it was a music that also, both they had this in common, which is kind of great, I think, about the blues and punk music, is it had an element about it was it, you couldn't care less what people thought of you. You, yeah. you weren't trying to be like, this is what I do. If you don't like it, erk off. You know what I mean? Right. And I like that was the blues was like that, as well as the as well as the the punk music you know it was it had this it had, it had a devil may care sort of thing which was great and um so there are elements of of uh, in a lot of i think those punk records there's like elements of blues records because it's just like people like bashing it you know and it's having rebellion. a go um but at the time the uh london at that time must have been about 1977 it was like when the whole punk thing was just starting to happen and it opened the doors basically for lots of people who were like on the fringes, and yep. they suddenly, well, that's what we're, we, we are that then, if that helps us get a gig. Okay, right, you know, yeah. We're on the fringes, really, you know, of, of everything, you know. And so so Wayne uh, County, who's marvellous, who's now Jane County, yeah, it's really great. I mean, and uh, Wayne said, uh, uh, and they, it was before Squeeze had actually recorded. Actually, the, the, the thing I should say is I've actually, the first thing I recorded was down the road a piece with the Camp Bishops, which was a great sort of they were a great English R&B group at the time, but um, anyway, but 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 essentially Wayne County said, 
uh, we're recording this track and could you come into Marquee Studios and play it? So I went in and played the, uh, and, and he said, it's just like a kind of burlesque blues. Uh, we haven't got any words for it yet, but if you could just play on the first, sure, yeah. So he played it and there was no vocal on it. And he sat next to me, he said, just make it real burlesque, sure. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's like, I'm really pleased to, to do it. And then when I finished, I said to the, the, the manager, said, oh, great, yeah, you, you get a, I think he gave me 18 pounds, which was great, the session fee. And I'd never been paid for doing it. I said, really nice. great. I said well, I'm really pleased. I said, but the thing is, what would mean more to me than um, really, uh, what would be more to me than just getting the money is to get a copy of the record as soon as it, co as it comes out. Because right. I've never actually had been on a record before. Right. And I'm really excited. It's my first record I'm going to be on. So I'd really like to get it. And I'm really excited about it. Thanks very much. So he says, sure, give us your address and I'll send it to you. So, okay. so at the time, I'm living with my mum and dad and sort of, you know, um, I must have been 18, 17 or 18, uh, maybe 19, whatever. Anyway, and, um, uh, you know, a month or six weeks later, whatever it is, knock on the door, through the post comes this record. And my mum is there with um, her very nice friend who I called my auntie and another friend of theirs, and they're all having tea. And I said, oh, look, I said, this is coming. This is my record I've, I've played on, I told you about. Oh, listen, everybody, it's, it's his record, <laughs> everybody. So we put it on, and it sort of goes on the thing, and it starts off, and it's basically, it goes, it, it basically goes, uh, if you don't want a baby, 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 and it just goes on like that. And then at the end, in, with the beautiful, which is a lovely thing that punk music invented, it then stops at the end in a bit of chaos. And then there's a count, and it goes one, two, three, four, one, two, three, and it's sort of the tempo goes mad, and he just screams and and just screams, and then they sort of smash everything up, and it finishes. And it was really great because I listened. I thought, oh. And so my mother said, well, it wasn't that marvellous done. Did we love it? Oh, it was really super. Well done. A record. Oh. <laughs> I was giving green bun as a treat. Oh, thank you. you know, so um, it was. But it is actually a really great uh, record. And then, actually, um, for some reason, we did a gig with. Um, or no, it wasn't a gig. We did. I think we were on the bill with uh, Wayne County and the Electric Chairs. Um, and... My mum came, and of course, when I said, "Oh, we better watch Wayne when he comes on," you know, and when he came on, everybody screams out or starts to chant, "Right, because it was his, it was his hit," you know, it's a song, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, but it was quite funny to come on to that, and, but that's because they loved him, not because right. you know. <laughs> that's great. Tell me about like you know um, when you guys first put Squeeze together. Um, John Cale was the producer from Velvet Underground. And I read something that like the the band had the 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 couple of radio songs that were off those those first recordings, the band actually had to go in and, and produce them themselves because the record company thought that John's versions of the songs were too experimental. What was it like? I mean, what was it like working with 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 John as a producer in this studio with this new band that you guys had just formed and. Well, I, I think he was he's actually he really is like a genius, you know, in lots yeah. of ways. And he was also much, he was a long, and he was like a punk before punks. Right. And he loved the blues. You know, he understood, he understood, he got it all. And I think a lot of it, we were quite young and a bit daft and didn't get it as much as he right. did. And I remember him explaining to us at sort of length, really, how 
you know, the commercial, the commercial pressures of record companies that we would be put under if things were success, we should ignore because he said they'll just get you to do the same thing and they'll squash any creativity out of you. He right. said, you listen to yourselves. He said, but you've got to learn who yourselves are first. He said, and if you right. know that, and then it, it was like that old thing, the music's got to come out of you, but you've got to learn who you are. So he was very good at explaining that. Um, then the thing I think after, and he, he had to go back to America and then the one so we did one ourselves, which Glenn Tilbrook did really, which I think was Take Me, I'm Yours. And that was the one that was the, the, the hit off the record. Yeah. But there were some other really great ones. I mean, what he did, I think, looking back now, it was really he he was really trying to sort of educate us as to the difference between being uh, a formulaic pop person or thinking not that there's anything wrong with that because pop music no, no, no. yeah. yeah. is a beautiful perfume. But he was trying to to explain that there's a slight difference some music comes from a different attitude right from a different kind of a place and from a different sort of out of here and it's a bit more aggressive and i think that's what he taught us really and he was really very good and he had he did have some very strange out there ideas about sound and how making you know how just weird sounds that were going on um and uh, yes so dear john well you know i i ended up you know my first record was produced by a guy named tom dowd and it was it's the 20th anniversary of it. It's, it, I kind of feel the same way. You're like, when you're in there for the first time, you're, you're, the world is your oyster at that point. There's so many knobs and switches and you don't know who you are as an artist. You know, I mean, now we, what we go into the studio and you go, okay, this is what we want to do today. And this is the toolkit we have. But when you're access to it for the first time, it's, it's, it's a pretty daunting, you know, process. But also he's, but Tom Dowd is also like a sort of a legend. So it was, did you find it overwhelming going into, into the studio with somebody who's, you know, made all these amazing records? You know, he never wore those records on his sleeve. He never wore the, the, because the assistant engineer would always ask him, it's like, well, what was it like recording Otis Blue or Aretha? And he's like, listen, I was the guy who was lucky enough to be in the room with Aretha Franklin. My job was to put a, a microphone. It could have been any microphone. She would have sang, and it would have sounded like Aretha. My job was to record it competently. You know, he's involved in the arrangements, but he would never. He was always. He was always preached the "we're here today" kind of concept. It's not. It's not the Allman Brothers. It's not Skinner. It's not Aretha. It's not always. You know, we're here today. And, you know, like, that's one of the cool things I always loved and respected about him because he never, he, you know, he didn't bring his Grammys to the, to the session. <laughs> Some people think. Wouldn't, wouldn't have been room. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Tell me how you got into television because, you know, after you were in Squeeze for, for seven, eight years, and um, did somebody approach you about getting into television? Or did you, like, go, and, I, I want to get into this, this presenting Thing. No, I tell you what happened is uh, I was always a bit of, uh, you know, when I was younger, I was on stage. I was always, uh, you know, um, going off and being abstract and sort of, and, um, and we never, with Squeeze, we used to have whole bits that were sort of improvised where we'd have some right. music and I'd just like kind of rant about something. I don't know really what we do. And, and, right. and, and we did it together sometimes. It was just like, it was like a sort of strange happening. Yeah. But, um, but I had a, you know, I was able to communicate and, and wasn't, and was, and had the, I suppose what it was, was basically a show off, you know, I suppose right. that's what the, one of the main quali qualifications you need uh, right. to be on television. But, um, but I think that 
what happens then after and I was with Squeeze a bit and I really liked it but then I felt like you know he's kind of great but kind of taking on board what John Cale said you know you can't get allow yourself to get too comfortable and I wanted to do my own I, I realized I missed I was playing I missed playing the piano a bit you know right. and, uh, uh, so I left Squeeze and formed a group called the Millionaires and that didn't go so well really although we had that that the bass player Pino Palladino was it yeah when he first came up from London, which was a great time. But then the millionaires didn't work out. And I was signed to uh, Miles Copeland, who had been Squeeze's manager, was still my manager. And he was also the manager of the police. Yeah. And so I came round and did uh, I, opening with just solo piano. I opened some shows for the police around America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then they were going to Montserrat to record. And they said, oh, maybe there's something for you to record there with us. Maybe you can play on a track, which that didn't work out. They said, but, and then Miles said, well, we're doing a film about them. Why don't you come and do it? So we went out and we made this film. I sort of presented this film and looking at Montserrat. And and it was, anyway, ended up and it got on the, it was on the BBC at at Christmas, I think. And I remember I was doing another show with with the police um, that somewhere at Christmas. And it had just been on. And Sting said to me, he said, I saw the show you did with us. He said, you know, you've got a whole career there if you want, if I'm telling you that. I said, what do you think? Anyway, and a, a, sort of a few weeks later, um, some people were starting up the show in England called The Tube rang and said, it's a brand new music show called The Tube and we think Jules would be great. Would he like to come and host it? And it's going to be live for an hour, hour and a half. And um, and they wanted it to be sort of chaos and sort of just like sort yeah. of and, and to revolutionise and get, give it a bit of a kick up the arse because music on the television at the time had been quite earnest, right? And quite uh, or been presented in quite an earnest and um, journalistic way, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But that's but they felt it might be just make it more fun and and also it was a time in music there was you know there's always something new going on in music, but it was also at that time there was a lot of new comedians and stuff coming up in england and that was kind of it was it was like a sort of an underground sort of thing of all of that and they so they came on the show as well so so that so and that was really how how i got into television through that and that was you know and and, um and so then through that in short i then did that for a while and then when that finished because i didn't and and also while i was doing that it was great because it gave me the opportunity to make these we went to jamaica and made a film about jamaican music and this one in new orleans which is the one in new orleans is really good it's called walking into new orleans i think it's on the a youtube but that's great because it's not because of me but because it's got people and places it's new orleans in 1984 and it's a different place in it's obviously right. before the, the yeah, great hurricane yeah. but more than that there's people people in it who we've lost now and right. the atmosphere of the place is kind of how it was and it was kind of i was very i still saying i'm proud of that film so it gave me a chance to do things like that when that finished i didn't have anything to do so that's when i first started touring with gilson Lavis, who was right. the drummer in squeeze because he wasn't doing anything and um and we started doing our own kind of shows, you know. And we thought, well, this is this is great. Well, well, so we, and that's that's what's really evolved into the big band that we have now, right. which plays all over the place and and plays my music and blues and ska music and that style of thing, you know. Well, and God bless you for keeping the big band together, because I I mean I know, I I well at, at the most I've ever had was eleven pieces, and now we do eight piece. Um, if I'm not forced to retire, but anyway, going forward is like, you know, I mean, like taking a 20 piece band out is incredibly expensive, you know, it is a a straight, 
I think one of the strange things is for us, as it, it evolved into a big band, it started with just the two of us. I'd say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my big band to the stage. And Jess Gilson, the drummer, would walk on. And he was a big band. Then we, I think we did a festival some, sometime where this, we had a bass player go up and right. thought, oh, that's beautiful. Well, he can join. And then a, then a guitar player was marked and joined us. Oh, that's useful. Right. And then we had a little horn section. And Enrico, the great Jamaican trombonist, rang up and said, can I, have you got a gig? Oh, yeah, come. And it sort of evolved. And we found, and the more people that joined the group, the more people seemed to come to see us, or the right. two things seemed right. to evolve. Um, uh, it's hard sometimes, you know, we go, I go out and do smaller shows sometimes, you know, uh, we, we don't do, sometimes we'll do smaller ones in other places outside of the UK sometimes, because we, yeah. we just can't, you know, but we've been around to Australia and, and, um, and, and Japan and all that sort of thing. It's just harder if you have, all you need is two or three days off doing nothing, and then it's kind of, it's cost everything, you know, because it's you've got to keep 20 people in hotels and pay them all. So it's, but having said that, the sound it makes is really great. Um, and we play on TV. We, we, it's, every New Year's Eve, we play on a TV, we play the TV, this big TV show, guests come and sit in with us. And it's been wonderful, you know, we've made some great, uh, and made records with people and everything. Yes, it's, it's, who does, um, one of the things that uh, always intrigue me about a large format, it, how intimately are you involved in the arrangement of of it? Are you going okay? There's a problem with the second or third trombone, or, or is it? Do you do you have do you write it all out and then 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 see how how it feels yeah, that's, musically? Yes, that's a good question. So really, the the big band is a vehicle for a number of different things. It's a vehicle for music that I or songs that I've written, um, and. Right and songs that we just want to play so if i might hear something i really like the sound of like a big band arrangement or something one of my guys will transcribe it you know right. we've got some old uh, we've got some of the stuff like with uh, with the count basie sort of blues arrangements right and we play those but with like a rock and roll rhythm section really which is what right. makes them kind of, that's what makes it different right um and they will try and um transcribe that and the same with some of the old early scar things because we have a couple of the early older jamaican players with us right. it's a great vehicle for them so we'll take some of the old scatterlight arrangements but make them bigger because it's a big band and they'll just transcribe it and we just play it sometimes i'll say this is my song it's how i want it to go and, I, and and here's a reference this is you know and i'll sing it to them and they'll write it down when we then sit and do the arrangement you listen to it and you think, well, that's a bit too much take that bit away i'll take that bit away and everybody in the band will say oh that well, that trumpet doesn't sound quite right there. Take it down. I told you, Britain that too. You know, they sort of all help, and it it hones down after, like you know yourself, after a few gigs, whatever the tune is, it hones right. down. But what we've done for the last you know twenty five years, we've been touring with it, is that we uh, every January after we've done a load of shows, we come in and put that and we record five or six pieces that we've been doing that that year, and right. then move on and learn learn more and the way i've realized that what really keeps it alive is playing and playing new things all the time but right. and i think also because it's not it's 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 called the rhythm and blues orchestra actually because of my uncle david's band the planets right. which is the rhythm and blues group um but it's like i think it's like that it's like we you know we'll take a it's, it's for my music it's for the things that i've written or scar music that we do or for instance we did a lionel hampton arrangement and they're so they were like early rock and roll, you know, or that early. I I love that early rhythm and yeah. blues from the from the late forties, early fifties. Some of that, the feel of that music, I just love it. And 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 so I suppose we play it, but probably with a with a British take on it. Right. It does sound, but it sounds quite. I quite like the 
the crude crudeness is maybe the wrong word, but it's not like super refined. Um, it's not like a. Uh, it's, it's it's more comes out of here, you know. Right, right. You know, and I I, I like that kind of music too, because where it's not totally polished, and you know, I mean, what do you think of the 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 movement in live performance that that not only the instruments play a part of it, but there's also well, I'm on a laptop. Um, what do you what do you, what do you think of of the the kind of use of tracks in a in a live format is it fair game now or is it kind of like it, well it, you know I've got, I mean, my word not yours but is it a little disingenuous I think it depends what you can do I mean I sometimes you know uh, I go out and do shows with just a drummer still and some singers but right. then you see I'm lucky because I've got an orchestra all the time which is my ten right. fingers and a piano so yeah. I can and a piano you can really accompany yourself. I think there are some people who are starting out, for instance, who I know some young people who are great singers, but they can't they can't afford a band. They can't afford anybody. Right. They can't afford themselves even. And right. they've got to turn up to places where it's harder and harder to get a gig anywhere. So without them playing something off of a computer or whatever it is, they you know at least you can got them. I mean I, I I'm not a lover of karaoke. I have to say I don't like yeah. that. I'd rather hear somebody playing really badly, accompanying yeah. somebody like who, who can sing. Right. But to me, that's real and that has a heart, you know. Yeah. Uh, but 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 I do think that you it's it's each you know some people just can't haven't got the they haven't they can't afford basically to to do it. It's not something I would do partly because in years ago a few times Squeeze tried it. And as soon as you try, it's always a disaster. Everything goes out of sync and it never works. I thought, why are we bothering with this? You know, right, so right. I, I gave up after that. So it's not for, it's not for me, but mm. I'm not I'm not saying it, other, others others shouldn't. Yeah. You later with Jules Holland started in 1992. I've always said that the two greatest live music shows of all time, Austin City Limits has been on here since the 70s here in America and later with Jules Holland because of the adventure that the show takes you on musically. Now, who came up with the concept of doing four or five acts in a round? Going, well, and, it's, and it's just, you go, you go, you go. And, and it's like, and it could be every, anyone from the Foo Fighters to Imelda May to whoever, literally back to back. Well, I think one of the things, the first thing is the, the, the physical concept came out of uh, actually it was the, there's a what, the person actually doesn't really ever get any credit is a woman called Janet Fraser Cook who right. who's the the director of it and because when it first started there was no money there was no audience and we just had the people in the room and she said well there's not and there wasn't enough we couldn't change things over um, right. and also my natural way was just walking around so she said right. well let's just right. let's she, and she said well let's just follow you right. you know we've done shows with music before um, you know, with the tube, and there was a one I did at Night Music with David Sanborn and all that, but you, it was a different sort of thing, and this was much more just the music, don't worry about anything else, and and it ended up that it, it sort of evolved that, you, uh, that the camera was in the centre with me going around, So, but it meant that you, the audience, hopefully, are with me coming around the room. I can share the room with you rather than... Uh, right, and it's right. quite specific that, but and but the other real key to it, of course, is the music that's in there, and um, and that's the, the in a, getting a mix of things is the most important to us. So you'd want some, you know, you want to you each week we'd want to try and have a huge star on. We want to have an up and coming star on. You want to have a great legend who's an important legend yeah. who maybe 
um, is a great legend in the world of uh, their own music, but isn't broad and known, but they should right, be there. Right, and then right, somebody right. maybe from the, who doesn't have a home anywhere else on television, maybe it's from, uh, they might be from rap, not rap music, but they but rap, well, it might be, might be from rap music, it might be from folk music, it might be from uh, um, European folk music, it might be reggae music, but places that really don't aren't, haven't got a home anywhere else on television. Right. We've got, we've got, we. So it's trying to get a balance of all of those things every week and have all of those people in the room, and hope. And, and a lot of the time, well, sometimes it doesn't because you can only have who's coming through at the time. But it's amazing how it stayed on, and the, and I'm really pleased the BBC have kept it on. I mean, they sadly they only do we only do twelve shows a year, right. uh, and right. you could easily do fifty two shows a year and yeah. fill it up with fantastic people. Um, which is what I keep asking the BBC to do. But it's, it's again, a bit like you were saying about Tom Dowd, it's not me that makes the show great, it's the music that makes it great. But, but and Janet found a way of, uh, it is great, because you never know what's around the corner. And, um, and of course, right. it's kind of an, uh, it's, it is, so it's almost all shot from my point of view, because I'm in the middle of the room, you can swing around and see it, you know. So, but now, of course, this last uh, series, we couldn't, record because we couldn't have all those people in a room together right, we couldn't right. even just having the crew would have been too many people in the room it's that's what i'm that's the whole thing with this current situation it's not just the gig it's not when not just the musicians it's all the crew all of the the people working in the theaters and it's the same with the tv show it's all the people working in the tv studio the engineers the crews and everything um so we couldn't do that and this last series we've done it with just one-to-one -one like this asking right. people to, to tell a talk for it, like you're doing with me, but they pick bits out of their archive and, and, sh and show that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge amount. I've You were nice enough to have me on twice, and, and you know, there's a huge amount of logistics. Just just the road crew that I carried in, was, there was 10 people involved, let alone the eight-piece band. So there's 18, plus the there was five other bands the last time we did it, you know. How intimately are you involved in, in selecting the music? Do you, do you have, like, a stack of... CDs you have to you, you you get from the BBC going check this out check this out check this out or is it curated other ways I think it's it works in a number of different ways I think over the years sometimes you know sometimes I've been away on tour quite a lot I haven't been able to be you know because it's been, we've been doing it for 26 27 years or whatever it is right 28 years I don't know God, right. I don't know anyway in a long time yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and part of the thing, it's not so much thinking, oh, that'd be great. It's part of thinking we've got all these people. What what sort of a how can we achieve to get a great ballot mix of all different things, things that are really, you know, what's great is if you have a piece of very quiet folk music followed by a piece of something that whatever is the completely opposite of that. Right. So that's what we're trying to trying to get. Also, sometimes I will spot people who they maybe hadn't seen are coming through. Um, uh, you know, I think it was one time I saw that Gladys Knight was coming through, but she wasn't doing gigs. But I spotted this somewhere, so I said, right. "You know." But there's a there's a there's a great producer who does who has um, who's who's doing it, and and I work with them um, it, a lot of the time because I'm going to be on tour. It's it's like a full time job, but I'm sort of on the phone and and, and being involved, and 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 I would leave. Also, you know, part of it is. It's although we do have new, you know, some people perceive the show as a place where it's just new artists. I right. mean, we have one night with new artists, maybe sometimes two. Right. But we've got to, we've got to try, and we only have these short amount of shows, and we're trying to represent lots of different sorts of music. So it's 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 hard to get it all in sometimes. Well, I'll tell you the um, one of the things I will never forget, and I can't thank you enough. Um, the last time I was on, 
you asked me, we were sitting at a piano bench and you asked me how many guitars um, that I own. And I, and I answered truthfully. I should have. I should have rounded down, but I said on air, I said, I have, I have around 400. And during, as the show was going on, you got a text from a, let's say one of my favorite guitar players. And he called me a weirdo. It's one of my favorite moments of my life right there. He's <laughs> <laughs> like weirdo. Yeah. That's right. I'm always. I think I'm always rather pleased when when people say that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was but like, you, like it's very high, very English thing to say. He's like, yeah, it's a, that's just a weird weirdo. <laughs> yeah. But it's like you've got a. That's right. But it also it's always takes one to spot one uh, with somebody who, in other words, I think uh, um, whoever sent that text, I think probably has their own particular collection of whatever it is, model trees or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Whatever the thing is. Yeah, yeah, it's so like it's, yeah, well, and that's whatever you've collected there. That's not weird, then, is it? You know, which you've probably collected and never got out of its box anyway. By the way, thank you. Right, right. There's, he, uh, whoever sent the text, has also had collection issues in the past. Um, uh, tell me about the before we wrap up. Tell me, tell me about your cars. How the how the cars running? Well. The cars, the, when it, when it, when all this first happened, you know, I was a bit. You, you know, I have. I like you. I like an old car, and right. uh, and I, I'm charmed by often um, like guitars a bit. Actually, you know, I think you could say it's some of them are just bashed up, but they've just they they're just charming and they need a home. You know, they need to be sort of looked yeah. after, and they just appeal. Um, uh, and at first, I was a bit worried because you couldn't really. I didn't want to be out with a you know everybody having an awful time and being ill and everything and there's there's he's mr show driving around in his in his <laughs> old cars and he couldn't care less sort of thing right but now it's kind of calmed a bit i mean it's you still got to be careful it's been a been an opportunity to use them a little bit i mean i think that's the, the, the most important thing to use them um and i've had uh, i've got a copy of the old uh, rover jet car i had that out um it's a copy of the uh I can hear, I, I think, is there somebody texting you saying weirdo? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> um, uh, there's a, a copy of the, of the gas turbine car, which in 1955 Rover made to, um, uh, and they took it, not very far, but to, to, and it could it could do sort of 120 miles an hour or something, right. which is the fastest gas turbine car. Inside. So I've got a copy of that, which has a Jaguar engine. So I took that out. That was quite um, a bit of fun. And I always like, you know, I mean, I think half the fun is imagining what your next car might be and right. imagining how happy you'd make yourself and everybody else with that next car. You know, yeah. it's that sort of whole imagining sort of thing, I think, is, is quite a good bit. Um, I, I don't have it. You've got a nice pickup, I know, at the moment. And I'm, I don't have I always used to like to have some sort of a, a, a light commercial vehicle. Yeah. In, because then if you put something like a box of matches in the back of it after you've been to the shop, great. It's got a... Right. Purpose, you know, and um, and you feel like you've sort of you know done something. I, I just brought the uh, the pickup here in Nashville to the shop because it's been four months since I've been here, and and I I, I get in to start it. Thank God it starts because it's in a parking garage. It would be tough to tow it out of here. And I move it, and there's the ubiquitous, just not lovely preserve, just pool of oil. It had developed an oil leak, so I was like, ah, time to bring it in, you know. Time to working. That's good. But I would. I. I mean, I really like Nashville. I think Nashville's a great place. Yeah. I was very sad when that place, the Pie Wagon, shut. Is it the Pie Wagon? There was a big pie, old, old-fashioned cafe. It was really great, and I think yeah. it closed. 
Yeah. I loved it. And, and they just you just went up with a tray and you pointed and they gave you, oh, it was great. But Nashville, Nashville would be a good place to drive, I'd imagine, especially the countryside just outside. It's very pretty, isn't it? Really pretty countryside. It's a, it's a great place to drive. You know, unfortunately, what's happening with Nashville and, and what well, it's yet to be seen going forward is there was such an influx of people including myself, you know, I'm part of the problem, not the solution. Such an influx of people that drove the real estate and the rents and the and the just the value of the property so high that like a lot of those like old time restaurants that were charged two dollars and ninety five cents for bacon and eggs, you know, the price hasn't changed since the sixties, couldn't afford to stay open. Or the allure of of like on hey, we had some property develop offer us three million dollars for our restaurant because they were gonna knock it down and put up a you know, and unfortunately, I think it, it, you know, it, it destroys the soul, you know, of, of, a, of a city when it when it gets, you know, the word yeah, gentrified. I, I think that is it. I agree with you. And I think it's a shame because I've been going to Nashville for a long time and I loved it. I love I mean, it had a smart bit and everything, but I loved its sort of tattiness. And it's the same with London. You know, it had sort of it had tatty corners. Right. Bits, bits of tumble down bit as well as having, you know, that's what. But now there's no tatty corners left. Everything's kind of no. smart. And there's no kind of sort of dustiness left anywhere, you know. And I, I, I sort of miss that really. Um, it's the culture of the city. Jules, I can't thank you enough for being on. I'm, I'm honored to call you my friend, and and I, I love the show, and and it's just, it's just an honor to have on. And and you're an OBE. You're the only OBE of, I've, I've ever interviewed in my entire life. You're the only OBE that, that I know. It's that it stands, by the way, for other bastards' efforts. Right. <laughs> now, are you technically uh, just a quick question? Because because I'm, I'm I'm a dumb American. Um, are you technically Sir Jules Holland? Do you, no, do you... no, no, no. It's just it's, you just have the OBE. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but, no, um, but what do you have to get to get the Sir Jules Holland? What what's the title? That's a that's a nightmare when the queen puts a sword on you. That's quite that's quite a, that's quite a different. That's that's a, that's the next that's the next step up for anybody if, if, yeah, if they it's get the that. Next year. But I mean, I was going, I wanted to say to you because we I, we're we're finishing our chats now. What I, it's so nice to chat to you, and I'm so pleased that you're such, uh, you're a great friend who I tell everybody about all the time. Because not only that, I think that today you're one of the greatest players of the guitar on earth. The more I listen to Thank it, you. You, but you have a touch. I think that's that's the word that I've heard those great British people talk. They talk about just having a touch. You should, and it's just effortless. And I think that's what. And it, it's amazing. Every time I listen and hear you and watch you play, it's, it's just got this effortless, huge. It's an effortless, huge gravitas of sound that comes out. I think it's thank you. It's it's really your and 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 what is great is every all the time you're sort of just kind. Of, you know, the, out of these fingers comes more power. It's great. It makes me very happy to hear and to follow. I'm, I'm honored. Jules Holland, thank you very much. This has been Live at Nerdville. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Jules Holland.